May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. I remember uh, a number of years ago we had a clergy training day down in Rotorua and um, one of the lecturers from St John's came to talk about science fiction and theology. And he showed us a range of science fiction TV programs and films and talked about the theology behind them. And one of them was an English science fiction series. I can't remember what it was called. It could have been Babylon 5. And it was very unusual because in the last episode, all the good guys die and the baddies win. And his point was, this could never have been made in America. In America, it has to end happily ever after. It could only have ended with the good guys winning, or at least being in a drawer, safe, and the bad guys not winning. It kind of feels like some kind of an American had got hold of Job and fixed it at the end. We've had this great story, which is all about this theology which said God is just and moral, and has to operate within a just and moral framework, and so if you are just and moral righteous, then God will reward you with long life and good health and wealth and lots of kids, blah, blah, blah. And then there's Job who fits all of that and there's the discussion between the Satan who's kind of the chief prosecutor rather than the way we think of Satan and God and the Satan says he's only faithful to you because he has all those things. Take those things away and he will curse you to your face. And Job does not do that. But he still has lost his kids, they've died, all his flocks have died, his crops have died. He's just sitting in dust and ashes. And his friends come and they sit with him for seven days and then he starts to say, look, something's wrong here, I am just, I am moral, I am a righteous man and here my life has turned to custard. I need my time in court with God because God has not behaved properly as God is supposed to behave. And then the friends spend a long time defending their idea of God. And then God responds to all of that, and then we have this reading today, which is highly problematic. For a start, there's the happily ever after that has been tucked on the end, as if having seven more children can somehow replace the seven children that died at the beginning of the, of the story course they don't there is the really interesting part of that that the the sons never get named beginning or end but at the end the daughters get named how often does that happen in the old testament and they get an inheritance how often does that happen in the old testament or in fact in the middle eastern world so that part of the story is very unusual so There's this happily ever after tucked on the end and there's a great debate within the the world of Bible scholars about whether the original writer of Job wrote that or somebody read it and went, like, this is just too nasty. There's got to be a happily ever after and they added the happily ever after. And it's made murkier by, well, some of the translation in chapter 42. So... Chapter 2, 42, verse 6. 
is a very difficult verse to translate because, well, as one of the people I listened to said, there just isn't enough Hebrew in there to really make sense of it in English. It kind of says in Hebrew, I recant and sit upon dust and ashes. And the translators have gone, what do we do with that? So what they've done with that is, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So they've added a whole lot of words in there to make sense of it. But to do that, they've had to think about what theology (coughs) they are going to portray. So I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. But what is Job repenting of? Like he was always a just and moral person and at no point did he curse God. He simply said, this is how the world is supposed to operate and it's not operating properly. So there's a real question about how they've done that. And the guy I listened to said, he was pushed and said, well, how would you translate it? And he went, I can't. There isn't enough Hebrew in there to actually make sense of it in English. I don't know what you do with that. I recant. The repent word is repent or recant or despise. So they've just kind of repeated it. But actually, what he does do there is recant. He says, look, I questioned God. I said things about God. I was operating out of a worldview that clearly doesn't work. And God, like in in his response, he's kind of quoting what God says and and goes, Yep, I didn't understand that. I can't answer that. I really was out of my depth. God is God, and I simply have to accept that. So he recants. And, well, in the end, he is still sitting upon his dust and ashes that used to be his life. That's where he's left. And then for some reason, the lectionary writers decided not to include the next three verses, which are where Job's friends are humiliated, And that's a little bit unfortunate because then we can just jump to the good stuff. And so if you go on the internet, you'll find a whole lot of sermons which use this passage in Job to preach sermons around if we confess and repent, God will forgive us and then reward us with long life and lots of children and da-da-da-da-da, which is the exact theology that Job was written to counter. So they ignore all the book of Job and go back to the first theology that was there. And the really interesting thing in the, in the friends bit is, verse 7 says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, and Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken. Now in the English it says, Of me what is right as my servant Job has. Job has. The really interesting thing about that is there is a Hebrew, two Hebrew words that in every other instance in the Old Testament where those words are used, they are translated to, not of. This is the only place in the Old Testament that they decided it should be of. And again, the commentators are going, why did they do that? So what happens if we put of in there? My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me of what is right. So what's going on there? Well, these friends 
went to Job in his despair and sat with him in silence for seven days. And then Job says, look, something's gone wrong here. I need my day in court with God. At which point these two friends and another friend launch into a very long diatribe defending this idea about God. And so what some of the commentators are saying is what they should have done was pray to God with Job. They should have joined in that lamentation. They should have joined God saying, something is wrong here. God, you need to come and talk to Job and sort this out. But instead, they defended their image of God which meant they could no longer see Job as their friend, but just as a sinner who needed to repent. Their image of God stopped them seeing their friend as their friend and joining in his prayer. So that is where they get into trouble with God, when their image of God stops them seeing the person, and praying with that person. And we can see the same thing happening with Bartimaeus. Now this story is a very important story in the the Gospel of Mark. So a couple of chapters earlier we had Jesus healing another blind man, but that took two goes, and in between the two goes he could just see Uh, people walking around like giants or like trees, depending on which translation you read. And then we have three times that Jesus tells them that they're going to Jerusalem and he's going to be arrested and he's going to be abused and he's going to be crucified and then he's going to rise. And the, the disciples can't hear that. They simply cannot hear that. So that's when Peter takes him aside and rebukes him and gets rebuked and James and John are asked the same question that Bartimaeus has asked. What what would you like me to do for you? And they say, well, when you are in your seat of authority and power, we want to be on either side of you, sharing in your authority and power. We want the good stuff. And then at the end of that section, they are leaving Jericho. And we have this blind man, Bartimaeus, clearly not writing for a Hebrew audience because he has to tell them that the bar means son of, whereas any good Jew would have already known that. And this is the first time that Jesus is called son of David in Mark's gospel. The next time is in the trial. Oh, no, actually, the next time is as he's going down through Jerusalem, which is very soon. It's the next story. So... The son of David stuff is introduced at this point. And he calls out Jesus, son of David, and which is a, an, an astounding title, a dangerous title. It's a revolutionary title. If Romans hear that title, they could get a little antsy. This is, this is revolutionary, insurgent talk. You don't want that kind of stuff going around you. That, that excites people. And so he's told to be quiet, but also it's probably a little embarrassing having this blind man drawing attention to himself because he is a blind man. But Jesus stops and says, call him to me and speaks to him as a person. He sees him as a person and prays with him 
that his sight will be healed. Now notice the difference between James and John, two of the leading disciples, and Bartimaeus. The same question. What can I do for you? What would you like me to do for you? James and John, we want the seats of power and authority. Bartimaeus, I want to see. And Jesus says, go. And he doesn't go. He follows on the way. And the way is to Jerusalem, to crucifixion. He follows. So who is the true disciple of all all of the disciples at that point? It's not James and John. It's not Peter. It's not the twelve. It's Bartimaeus. He is the one we are to model ourselves on. So one of the lessons in all of this is, how do our images of God blind us For James and John, for Peter, for those disciples, their images of God and what God was doing in the world absolutely blinded them from seeing what Jesus was doing. For Job's friends, their image of God blinded them to what God wasn't and prevented them from seeing their friend and praying to God with him. So... How do our images of God blind us? Today we remember Mahara, the day of remembering the New Zealand land wars. And Bonnie and I um, kind of discovered some of the other part of that story in America, really, uh, which is the horrific story of American slavery, which actually is the horrific story of the British version of slavery which is all the tenants were put in place while America was a British colony. And you kind of think, what was their image of God that allowed them to look at a human being and say, because you were black, you are by definition a slave for life? That's a British thing. If you were under a Spanish or French colony, they still took part in the slave trade, but there was always the possibility you could buy your freedom and become a free person of colour and take part in the economic and social and political life of that colony. So Louisiana had black people of colour who were took part in all of the economic and political and social life of that colony until 1803 when it became part of the United States. So what was the image of God for those people that allowed them to do that? For the way they treated the French in Canada, for the way... The stories just went on, really. And how that played out here in New Zealand during the latter half of the 1800s. What was their image of God that allowed them to do the things they did? How were they blinded by that? And how do we still buy into some of those images of God today? How do they still blind us and prevent us from seeing our brothers and sisters as our brothers and sisters? How do they prevent us from sitting with them and praying to God with them? That is the question we need to face ourselves as we think about Job and Bartimaeus on this day of remembering. So let's spend a moment thinking about that. If you want to, you can talk to your neighbour. Otherwise, we'll sit in silence for a minute or two. (coughs) 